Welcome back to the Great Men Podcast, episode 003. Today, we're going to be talking about Herodotus Book 2, paragraphs 43 to 120, 121 or so, and Book 3, paragraphs 61 to 79 or so. But of course, the star of the show is not Herodotus or the readings or even the great men, but my wonderful co-host here, Mr. Oscar Ortiz. Mr. Oscar Ortiz, welcome back. Thank you, Alex. It's a pleasure to be back I'm here from Dallas, Texas. It's uh, 10.30 p.m. at night. Uh, you're a great man yourself uh, agreeing to, to to come onto the show at this late night. I know that um, the listeners probably know that it, school is starting again uh, and it's around that time. And you're, of course, uh, you know, an administrator, principal, and you ha- I, we all know you have a lot of work on your plate. So the fact that you can make time for some some food for the mind like this is just a testament uh, to your own claim to greatness, Mr. Ortiz. <laughs> well, I appreciate that, Alex. There's a uh, there's never a better time than at night when you're at peace and no one's interrupting you uh, all day in the office uh, asking you for things. So this is a great moment. <laughs> you know, it reminds me of Machiavelli that's so popular where he talks about uh, getting at home, getting to home at the villa at night. This is after his exile from Florence and taking off his dirty, muddy clothes and and putting on his finery and engaging with the greats for three hours of study. This is every my, night. That is correct. Is that's my true vocation right there. So this is the moment I look forward to every day. Okay. Well, so last time we branded this conversation as sort of about Darius, but it turns out that Darius is actually going to uh, figure very uh, in a very small part in this this conversation, and it looks like he'll probably be a much bigger part of the next conversation. What what really figured prominently in our our um, reading today was a story of the Egyptians, and I wanted to ask you a couple questions about them, and uh, specifically the difference between uh, good stability and innovation. And they had a couple pharaohs or kings, as, as translated in my translation this time, who were mentioned, uh, one named Sesostris uh, and one named Men, who were separated by, by Herodotus's account. 330 different kings, <laughs> each ruling for about a generation, which is about 30 years long. So, you know, something like 9,900 years there. So that's quite a bit of stability. Mm -hmm. Uh, We also got a different account of Helen and Paris from what I teach in the Iliad with some good evidence from the Iliad in the Odyssey uh, indicating that perhaps Homer uh, knew this story but changed it. Um, We also have the very symbolic death of Cambyses that we could talk about. And then also there were two quotes by the young Darius that I I wanted to run by you um, when he is going about... Uh, retaking his throne after a very, very clever and very, very, very funny um, uh, uh, mutiny by um, uh, 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 the uh, the namesake of his well, not his uncle, but um, the man um, by how should I say it? The person who takes over the throne from the rightful king has the name of the brother of the rightful king who <laughs> would have, who would have taken the throne uh had he not been killed that's very uh, confusing that's very confusing it's probably something that we uh we should take a few a few moments to get yeah. into a little deeper here in just a second yeah and i i actually need to remember his name because it's falling Smir- out of my head so cambyses Smir- so well smurtis Sm- Smir- was it smurtis yeah yes okay well so starting in the middle then so uh <laughs> cambyses the son of cyrus had a brother named Smyrtus. Mm-hmm. And he had a dream that Smyrtus was king, essentially, that he saw clouds. And so he took it upon himself to have one of his elite henchmen um, kill uh, Smyrtus. Mm-hmm. Um, but then it turns out that these 
two um, Medeans or Midians, um, one of them is also named Smartest. And so when they attack, um, when they attack Cambyses, he realizes that it was never his brother at all who was going to kill him as he finds himself mounting his horse and then accidentally stabs himself with his knife or sword from his scabbard in the exact same spot as uh, a statue of, a, of Apis, a god of the Egyptians he had stabbed. He realizes in that moment that the person who will become king is not the brother that he had murdered to prevent from killing him, but the man who simply had the name of his brother who is going to take over through subterfuge mm-hmm. uh, right after he dies. It's a, tr- a truly um, tragic story um, because uh, this is also a point in Cambyses' life where he, according to Herodotus, is showing some indication of, of going mad, of losing his mind. Not only has he killed his own brother, but he's he's killing his sisters, he's killing his friends left and right. Uh, he, he kills the son of his most trusted advisor right before his own advisor. And it, it's, it's mm. just, um, it's really a a sad story to see a leader who had been at the top lose everything from uh, from a lack of consideration of those around him, and 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 perhaps Herodotus is right from just sheer madness. And so, you know, you being a leader, what would make a? And we have we have examples of this from the twentieth century. You know, Stalin, Mao, and even the uh, the 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 Kim family in North Korea. What, and Hitler, of course, during World War II was very famous for ordering deaths of his generals. Um, it, what is it that would make a leader who, who reached the top? And, you know, this also makes me think of uh, Saul before David. What is it? What, what is this common motif? What is it that makes a leader clam up in that way uh, to, to start to see enemies all around him and to start to estrange himself from those uh he would seek to leave do you think well, where does that come from yeah it, it's it's interesting herodotus uh is is a very bright um i think well obviously he's a genius but um he doesn't clearly give us the cause for this but he gives us a number of uh, uh a number of clues that uh one it could be actual it could be actually a sickness that uh Cambyses has suffered since he was a young child, and he calls it the sacred sickness. He's not totally convinced about that, but uh, he he does want to attribute it at times to some kind of malady, some physical uh, problem that has had some uh, mental repercussions. Uh, but he also, another, there's this kind of a undertone in the text that this might be a madness that comes about from too much power, so arrogance, hubris. Uh, this uh, breaking away from reality, given the, the amount of, of power and influence that he has to do whatever he wants, that is what has actually uh, brought this kind of madness or this moral corruption, if you will. So we have a, this interesting uh, play between the two themes. It could be physical, but it, the physical could be a result of the moral decay of Cambyses' life. All right, so you're really getting at the heart of what I was trying to ask there. So I'm I'm pretty excited here. Yeah, so a question. Uh, so we mined a few the data 
for this uh, for this episode. And we we went to some of our friends and some of our listeners, and we asked what they would like to see more of. And something we got was that um, uh, from our, our good friend Manuel Sakia is that he wanted to understand the interplay between the priest and the king, or the secular and the sacred ruler. And something you're saying there. The distinguishing between, between, say, the physical and the spiritual or, or the moral and the secular, suggesting that maybe they're two sides of the same coin, makes me wonder, to what extent is the most successful adaptation of a ruler to be as upright as possible? So we see, we see that these rulers attempt conquest in order to stow their powers, or they, they, they start to see traitors all around them, and they kill them in order to keep their power. Um, all of them are attempting to stay safe and potentially to keep their people safe, but in differing ways and in more and more flawed ways. Uh, uh, the longer they, they are flawed, one sees. Uh, we iterate patterns, right? Good patterns and bad patterns. So if you, you do something bad once, it's, it's only going to get worse. This, this is, uh, you know, we see this both in tyrants and in serial killers. Um, uh, and so, so my big question is, as a leader... Is the best thing you can do as a leader, rather than inspire fear or lying or, or even speaking very eloquently or articulately, embodying an upright nature or acting in an upright way, acting in a way that makes it so that those who follow you, if they imitate you, will also have good and successful adaptations towards uh, life because you as sort of an embodied upright individual are fair and thus the system that you maintain would by necessity be fair too. And that's the best we can hope for. I know that's a convoluted question, uh, but I'm really trying to get at it with you. And I think you've you've probably got the answer. Let's see. Well, I don't think I have the answer, but I I have a, a couple of thoughts on it. So the idealist side of me wants to say uh, without any doubt, yes, the primary role of the leader is to live the upright life, to embody and model righteousness. But the cynic in me would say, and again, and, and I, I hear this from a lot of from a lot of people that I that I work with in terms of looking for what are the aspects or the qualities that make a leader good. The, the cynical and the more practical side of me would say, with if all I did was spend time on becoming and perfecting my moral character then when would leading actually come into play? When would I actually, when would the leader actually have the opportunity to guide others and to um, run or supervise things and see things actually take place? Um, and I think as we see this interesting um, interplay of interests or priorities in the lives of a lot of leaders where some of them would, uh, would focus mostly on the development and, ca- and of perfection of their own souls to the uh, to the point of disregarding the more practical things um, and then we see more of the Machiavellian the more um, the leaders that are much more adept at manipulating and influencing and ensuring that things happen uh, to the detriment of their own moral character so I don't think that these two need to be in conflict with each other but you will see that Many times uh, leaders would will fall on one side more than another, almost suggesting that they it's almost suggesting or giving a bit of evidence that falling on one side or the other is going to really determine the kind of leader that you will be and your success. Um, 
Well, let me ask you about that because that sounds like a that sounds great. So what we one thing we've talked about uh, introducing some sort of animal laboratory studies and neuroscience into this uh, conversation is the fact sure. that humans are highly imitable, and so we imitate very well. And much of what we learn, we actually have embodied and cannot represent with our minds or articulate because, um, well, that's the lowest level of learning and the way that we first start to learn. Like uh, John Piaget, I think, says that we start with a sucking reflex and from that we build a vision of reality. And that's fairly incredible. That's why you don't have any visual memories of the first two years of your life. You were incapable of representing what you were learning, but you were coding motions into yourself. And so if you take that seriously, which of course you have to because you're a parent and so you know it's true, um, <laughs> uh, because those kids will imitate everything you do, then what you are doing as a leader, besides like handing down leadership and all of that, is you are fulfilling your role as well as you can possibly do. And so what is it that the people who have eyes on you are doing when they look at you? What they're observing, I would suggest is how well you're embodying the role regardless of the circumstance. And if you are embodying it as well as possible, uh, which I would define as as upright as possible, then that is going to help them to imitate your way of being, not your necessary actions, because obviously you're like sending emails and going to cocktail parties or whatever, depending on what level leader you are. Um, <laughs> and you know potentially they're doing something else. If they're teachers, they're in the classroom. You know, If they're truckers, they're in the truck, whatever. But what they can glean from you is that regardless of the fact of your tremendous success and that you could rest on your laurels, that what you're doing is pushing just as hard as they are. Um, and that so you're not simply guiding them in terms of having a vision, as we talked about in an earlier conversation, but also guiding them simply by doing your job as well as you can. What do you think about that? Correct. And um there's two experiences that really shaped my own um, my own understanding of leadership and my leadership style. The first one was um, the the realization that the the more uh, so so the realization that if you if you're a liar, if you gain power, if you gain influence through manipulation and lack of trust, and uh, just winning your winning your way. Um, in, in a wily manner, the more you mm -hmm. do that, the more the more success you gain, the more adept you are at or, or the more likely you are at uh, regarding those around you as doing the same as you are. Ah, it starts to warp your it vision. It does start to warp your vision. And uh, there is in my country, there is a very common archetype. I'm not sure that it's as common here, given how how liberated uh, the American Honduras. Yes, Honduras. Uh, and it's the archetype of the jealous husband or the jealous man. And it's um, it's fascinating to see that the jealous man is a result or is a consequence of a man who has had several affairs, who has been promiscuous all his life. <laughs> correct so that when he's ready to commit and, and I'm, I'm using ready in a very broad, broad inclusive way <laughs> when he's ready to commit he is not he's not ready to trust because he knows his own nature so well that he's paranoid at every every phone call every mysterious little piece of paper any strange string or on a piece of cloth 
means something that doesn't. Um, because but the, he's created a prison of his own sins. Because that's, exactly that's an excellent way to put it. Because he's suspecting himself of what he would be doing. Correct. And Correct, correct. Yeah. So actually, uh, coming to that realization made me, um, encouraged me uh, at a very pivotal point in my life to make the decision to not take that path. Granted, mm. it's not always easy. It's it's a matter of, <laughs> right? It's not it's that easy. And I'm not talking about the path of promiscuity, just to be clear to my audience. <laughs> the honest path. I'm talking honest. about the honest and righteous path of leadership. <laughs> Uh, the, uh, but the second experience uh, is actually uh, a quote that came straight out of Plato from the Republic, which really spoke to my heart, the, uh, in my young heart, because I was in my 20s when I read it the first time. Um, and it's the question, well, what kind of leader do we want? One that has grown up in an environment where he's, he's seen injustice, has done injustice, has done all kinds of crimes because the reasoning is that person knows the nature of others and will be able to act and counteract that kind of behavior or hmm. the young man who's innocent, who's been protected from all of those kinds of influences, but knows justice so well because of his upbringing, his just and noble upbringing, that he would recognize injustice better than the young than the other man who's who's grown to be unjust and to work and behave in an unjust world, um, and of course Socrates' you know, Socrates' conclu conclusion is that the one who's pure and had a noble upbringing would be more likely to identify not only injustice but to behave just in an unjust world. And you know, agreeing with that. Um, just from a practical point of view. And there were so many arguments that if only we'd accessed a little bit of data science or even just how things work in the world in different sectors, we could have put them to rest. Questions that I think some people think are eternally interminable and thus no light can be shed on them. And yet I think that most of these eternal questions are meant to be answered to the extent we can. And so just something about that is that Duke head coach Mike Krzyzewski explicitly said, and he's the most successful basketball coach of all time, and will likely, and, and his name will be right alongside John Wooden's when he retires, if not above, um, which is a very bold claim to make, you know, extraordinary. But one thing that he does is he likes to recruit from winning teams. And so what does that tell you? That he wants young men on his team who have established a tradition of success, who know how to be successful, who want to be successful, and understanding that that which leads to success is several intangibles brought into coordination in a young person's behavior and attitude, that it's, it's more than you can say. It's sort of like how Darius says, there are many things which cannot be explained in words and yet are practicable, just as there are many things which are brilliant when put into speech, but not when put into action himself saying, do what, I'm, do what I say in that instance to the other six conspirators trying to uh, uh, take back the throne from the Medeans for the Persians and him saying, listen, I know what I'm doing. Don't worry about the reasons. I'll be successful. But, uh, <laughs> but that strikes me as exactly what uh, you're saying as a, a practical example of somebody who has, I think, the most wins of any college basketball coach alive. And... Uh, 
if he is the most, if you measure success of a basketball coach by wins, then he would be the most successful coach alive. And he would be a direct embodiment of what you just said. Um, mm-hmm. that, that part of, part of what being uh, great is, is establishing that, that habit of great of success. You know, in, in fact, I, I worked at a gym here with um, some, some powerlifters who had world records like Gracie Vanas, who was a wow. side command athlete. And um, one thing she always said is we don't try lifts. Like you don't get under a bar being like, mm, I'll give it a wing. You get under it with the intent to succeed because you don't want to build a habit of failure. That's awesome. And so, you know, world record holder, most sec- most successful basketball coach in the world, Oscar Ortiz, Plato. These are, uh, <laughs> you know, and it, it just, it strikes me as bringing together many thoughts that if you were to see them alone would be cliches, but when you see them together, suggest that there might be something to it. Because, you know, Aristotle also says that a friend is another self. Hmm. And we have the cliche that, you know, surround yourself with the sorts of people you want to be. We even put images of the sorts of people we would like to grow into on our walls when we're young people. Mm-hmm. And so to, a, to set yourself along a certain path and to do everything possible to remain on it, no matter what, strikes me as, well, exactly what the metaphor of going through life in the best possible way is. I mean, it, we even say of someone, you aren't going down the right path. You're fairly wayward right now. Uh, uh, Dante found himself in a dark wood having lost the straight way. Um, Yeah, and remaining on that path is uh, what's a a bit perilous. Uh, So I I want to um, bring up Cambyses again because I wonder if, let's say, let's assume for the sake of argument that he actually did receive a noble upbringing and education and he was kept from the corruption of, um, you know, just conniving politicians in the court of his own father. Um, hmm. But he reached a point, right, in his power where he, how precarious staying on the path is, even with that upbringing. Uh, because Herodotus begins the, the, the fall, if you will, of Cambyses with Cambyses committing a sacrilegious act. So Right. It looks like it's the beginning of his fall when he decides uh, in a deliberate action to degrade the body of Amasis, which is the king of Egypt at this point. He comes in, he, he uh, tells his soldiers to pull him out of his grave, which is already kind of a scandalous thing for the Egyptians, including the Persians. You're not, you are not allowed to touch those bodies with your bare hands for the Egyptians, just to let the listeners know, especially at that Correct. time, you need special Nile priests mm-hmm. to do this. And something that Herodotus spent something like 80 pages really laying down <laughs> is just how religious the Egyptians are of all the people. They are the most religious and the least individuated is what he says. They care more about tradition than anything. I mean, like we were just saying 9,900 years of nameless, leaders so to 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 trespass on their most sacred cus- custom with their most sacred person <laughs> is, is, <laughs> yeah. it was something that would be just as the construction of the pyramids are almost unfathomable to us so would such a disgraceful mm-hmm. 
and and I uh, and, and I I don't even and sacrilegious act be to the Egyptians as an American I feel like I don't even you know it's like what I feel when I see somebody denied their freedom yes but yeah. so but even more but even more mm-hmm. uh, and com- and so. Yeah. Yeah. Cambyses, um, Herodotus doesn't give us the details of everything that's a, that's done to the body, but he does say that heinous acts are committed against the body, and then mm. the body is thrown into the fire, which is not only insulting to the Egyptians, but also insulting to Cambyses' own men, because they regard the fire as a god. So you should not feed a god the corpse of another human, according to the mm. Persians. So here we have, let's say for the sake of argument, Cambyses, a righteous leader, but he decides, he makes a deliberate act of the will to commit a corrupt action. Here we have Cambyses starting to habituate his himself, his own moral standing, his outlook of the world in a way that is less than appropriate. It's just a simple step, one single sin, if you will, that might seem negligible compared to all his other good actions but that small action it seems as Herodotus is suggesting it leads to more and more moral decay worse and worse actions murder uh, rape and all kinds of it this is better um, this is better than Game of Thrones Alex we might have to talk about the infamous. We might have to have an infamous guys segment at some point and talk about Caligula and Nero and such. But that strikes me as right, both in the Eastern and the Western tradition. I suppose Persia is, of course, East, just like the Hebrews. But, you know, the notion of the snake in the garden, of it only taking one mistake to take you out of the grace of the divine. Um, because, of course, King David sending the, the husband of the woman that he was in lust for into battle in order that he die so that he could could take this woman into his harem was the beginning of, of the end for him. So it seems like what happens is that if you're king or at the top of a dominance hierarchy, which you are then responsible for stabilizing, that the biggest uh, uh, the the biggest or the biggest temptation you can have is to identify with the dominance hierarchy as itself as a god because you're at the top. People treat you with reverence. But the problem is, since you're a human, you only have a finite amount of time in that role. And if you don't correctly identify with the role and incorrectly identify with the God, then that will expedite uh, your, your fall from the role, uh, it seems, uh, and specifically through your own actions. If you make one small mistake and as an iterating creature, you don't correct it, you're going to continue making mistakes of bigger and bigger magnitude, like you were, like you were saying, and so uh, it, it seems that the righteous life for a leader isn't just a protection for his own people, but even a protection for himself and his own eternal reputation. Correct. Ah. that's well said. And um, there seems to be two forces at play here the entire time: the leader that ascends and reaches the heights of power and influence has done so because he embodies an element of order. And if we go Mm. back to the first king of uh, Egypt, according to Herodotus, King Min. uh, Min. I love that. Simple name. Simple name. (laughs) One vowel, one syllable name. (laughs) (laughs) 
the greatest emperor, the first emperor of Egypt, the you know the most religious and incredible engineers who have ever existed, exactly. men. <laughs> but, but that's what's so remarkable about this man is again, as he he does have an engineer's mind, and what he is renowned for is the fact is three things. Herodotus names them in order. He says one. He, he builds dams and dikes to remove the flooding yes. and dry out the land. So that's an act of ordering. He then, it's helpful. Correct. He then builds a city on it, right? So he's establishing law. He's establishing order on it. And uh, after this... Additional boundaries. Correct, boundaries. Um, and after that, he's giving his people a life that they didn't know prior to... Um, to the to mm. these good things happening, so we have with these new boundaries. It's a totally new life. Their actions are totally different within the city than they would have been with a totally different relation to the Nile, and he has to provide. Yeah, excuse me, I'm just agreeing. Yeah, I'm just so, thinking it through. It's very interesting. But I, I want to drive home the third third and last step that he he does is he establishes an altar for Hephaestus, um, yes. sacred place. So he's. He's acknowledging that this force, whether he's embodying it, whether he's possessed by it, who knows at this point what's happening. But there's there's this power that's moving a, an individual in time to to get these things done. He's recognizing that ultimately he's not that thing itself, but it's instrument. And Herodotus, again, I'm, I'm trying to stick as close to the text as I can without bringing in my own um, views on things. Herodotus is the one who seems to suggest that's what marks his success. That's why we remember him, unlike Cambyses, who overstepped his boundaries to the point of not only identifying himself with the gods, but attacking the gods themselves. Uh, that's, I think that's completely correct. I mean, rather than destroying a statue of the gods and thus destroying himself symbolically, he creates a statue of the gods and thus subjugates himself as well as his people to an ideal above himself. Correct. It strikes me as, as, as the holy marriage, the hieros gamos. So just as two people in the Christian world subjugate themselves to the image of Christ or the family, as it were, because, of course, it's a male-female figure, um, which goes beyond male and female, right? Like as a marriage partner, there is a third ideal that you're both striving towards, which keeps you together. Well, as the king laying down the laws in a new city that you've built, creating new physical and legal and social boundaries between people, what is it that it, what is it that can guarantee that the people will actually do as you say? Because you are just another person as they are. Well, why don't you place an authority above all of you that even you as the most powerful are subject to? Well, is that fair? Well, if hierarchy is a natural fact of human nature, and so is inequality, what is the best way to, to, uh, to keep it so that even if there are, is inequality, there can be fairness? Mm -hmm. Subject your people to the rule of law or a god. Correct. Uh, the god being, of course, the ultimate protector of law because the god is um, uh, objective or, or the, the voice of all the subjective wills of humans and thus the closest thing to objective rather than just the, the arbitrary choice of one who has reached the top of that specific hierarchy. And so that it's, it's not just what's interesting just about you saying that is that he, unlike Cyrus is not a conqueror, but is a like 
but is a setter down of, of laws, a, a creator. And, and it is precisely because he subjects himself to the gods rather than subjecting other people to him that he seems to have such a long-term uh, effect, which I guess suggests what you're saying, that the righteous life is one in which you instill order um, in the souls or the beings of, uh, of those um, who support you or underneath you or who you guide if you happen to be a leader. Um, Correct. And uh, this brings us back to your first point. Uh, you, were, you, were, you were trying to connect us back to the uh, previous episode where we discussed the idea of the leader as a priest or the archetype right. priest. What's unique about the Egyptians, and I think that Min exemplifies this, King Min exemplifies this so well, is that there is very much, very strongly, the element of the priest in the kings of Egypt, as opposed to the surrounding kings and tribes. And, and Herodotus actually takes, just as you mentioned, 80 pages to really describe the customs of the Egyptians. Uh, he, he goes a long way to point out the prominence of male priests in Egypt, mm. unlike the surrounding uh, tribes and city-states where it's priestesses. And he also points out that he, he also wants to point out the prominence of how the Egyptians do everything opposite to everyone else, beginning mm. with how women urinate and how with how women and men urinate. Uh, women do it standing up, men squat. So it, he, he, it's, tr it's strange. It's both strange. It's a little bit awkward. We're not sure if Herodotus is trying to be funny or he's, or, <laughs> or he's trying to mock the Egyptian people. Not sure what he's doing there at, at, at that precise point. Just I, perhaps express a, a sense of just how strange the Egyptians <laughs> yeah. are. And, and even though they seem to do everything differently from the Greeks, that they happen to be the intellectual and spiritual forebears correct of the greeks they are the strange parent or like uncle or no no it's more direct it's there they really are like the strange parent or grandparent of the greeks and the greeks are highly deferential to i mean Herodotus includes all their customs for great reason in this text mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. correct and uh, we were in our previous episode we were discussing how this element of the priesthood has a feminine quality or is it it's um, more associated more with the female sex and I, I see Herodotus doing the same thing here where he's suggesting that the Egyptians do everything the opposite way what we what in other parts of the world would be considered feminine or non-masculine the Eg Egyptians seem to be the paragon of that when it comes to leadership and customs um, so for example, just to give you a, a quick example here, um, in addition to all the ones that Herodotus, um, the Egyptian kings, instead of going out to conquer, he does mention one, Sesostris, which is we can also discuss right. in just a moment. The only name after men for 330 generations. Yeah, for 330 generations, what we have is men who dwell in their space and build and, and create and are... Uh, you know, in, there's ingenuity, and what they're doing is they're improving their home, if you will. There's kind of an econ a home economics right here in the original sense of the word, where the king is more focused on the sciences, the, uh, the arts, the beautification of the city, the improvement of the lives of his, his people. 
something we don't see in these other kings that just essentially they go out to conquer more. Um, not not sure what their plan is on maintaining what they've conquered. <laughs> <laughs> they seem to be well, especially because if they iterate. They're probably going to try and conquer until they die. And, well, we have several examples of that happening, uh, not only within Herodotus, but, you know, of course, Hitler, Napoleon, uh, um, uh, let's see, Mark Antony eventually mm-hmm. ends up losing there. I mean, Roman general uh, <laughs> Alexander. Um, you know, it, it's, it's not hard to see, but, you know, that just makes me wonder. We, are, we live in such a progressive time and, and mm-hmm. in a time where there's so much multiculturalism where where so many and and technology due to the law of accelerating returns is changing so quickly and it seems as if it's sort of a natural virtue especially on college campuses where we met to you know think that change is so good change is good change is good but you know a claim that Herodotus explicitly makes and uh, that Plato actually makes too in I think both in the Republic and the Laws is that there's no sure cause of sickness to man than change. We, and I think the suggestion there is not that change should not happen or that change is not always happening, as Aristotle says, the moment there's nature, there's change, uh, nature or time. Um, but it, it makes me wonder whether our sort of modern perspective is that change equals good, whereas the ancient perspective was change might be good, but what change actually equals is danger. And so as a good leader, it's not necessarily the case that if an opportunity for change arises, that's going to be a positive, as we see from the tremendous stability of the 330 kings who, re- who ruled for 330 generations between King Men and King Sesostris. Mm-hmm. It makes me wonder almost as if we have this sort of heroic and great ideal that we, we should exist during difficult times in which our names get known, but it makes me wonder whether the true ideal as a, as a ruler is to live a nameless existence <laughs> to, to, to me, you know, to, and to, you know, that, that, the, that expression sort of turns to uh, ash in my mouth, but, <laughs> but to live, but to live during a peaceful time, like during a Pax Romana or during the time of prosperity of the Egyptian Kings and Pharaohs um, that if you are not remembered for anything great happening, you are most likely not remembered for any, tremendous flaws or catastrophes and that your people might have been happy and not dealing with um you know uh all the atrocities that both nature and man can commit uh to fellow man or man it's himself and it it just makes yeah no that's 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 excellent actually the way you put it is is uh is awesome um i had thought about it that way it does it, it isn't appealing to me. To, uh, yes. It isn't appealing to Not anyone who is ambitious and who wants to make a name for himself. But if we are to, if we were to learn from Herodotus' wisdom, I think you're correct. Um, he, it's very clear that those that are remembered, at least by Herodotus, is for their ostentatious behavior. Uh, they're hmm. they're either breaking the. <laughs> <laughs> they really stand out. <laughs> you stand out for being just the, I mean, uh, for for being uh, an anomaly uh, in in many ways. You you're either killing your people left and right and showing how awful of a leader you are, or you're an originator, uh, the beginner, hmm. the father of all of this, and then everything, yes. everyone in between, 
everyone, as you pointed out, they're nameless because their ultimate and primary goal, and again, this might not have been their goal. They might have just been <laughs> not very memorable people. The ultimate goal was the peace and the continuity of what they had, which was greater um, than any single individual ruler or leader at the time. And that brings us, uh, uh, Mr. Mr. Schmid, that brings us to our Maxwell Hour of the Night. <laughs> oh, very good. Very good. Very good. Yes. Okay. <laughs> yeah. No, I think that's a, that's a really, I mean, I'm so interested now that I could talk for two more hours. So that's always, I guess, the best time to let you go. Because no, no, you, if you, I'm you misunderstanding me by Maxwell. Oh, I, I'm so sorry. I, I mean the 21 irrefutable laws of Maxwell. <laughs> Oh, I'm so sorry. Yeah, no, and that's so funny. I have Maxwell right here. I'm sorry. I was just trying to be respectful of your time. Yeah, no, exactly. I I got another 20 minutes on me if you want to keep me on, but uh, perfect. No, I I certainly do. Well, let's. Yeah, one of the treat. One of the laws of. (laughs) Go on. One of the laws of Maxwell that uh, I've uh, never forgotten for this reason is called uh, the law of um, solid ground, Hmm. and. what it, what it means is that what the question he raises is what is your leadership uh, standing on? What is it established on? Is it something solid that will last or is it, or is it quicksand? Is it movable sand? So is your leadership, uh, are your relationships with the people you work with or who work under you solid or is it based on your charisma? Is it based on your personality? Is it based on your moods? Is it something that's shakeable or movable? Um, and what, what I see here in these almost 900 years of leadership is that solid ground. The Egyptians... 9,000. Oh, 9, that's right. It, yeah. Egyptians have something solid that they could stand on. And it's their tradition. It's their gods. It's their religion. It's their priests. Um, and, and it's when they begin, and I think this is very clear about the Hebrew people as well. It's something that we can draw from their example. When they begin to forget that is when we have at least recorded in history those times when they become enslaved or they lose, lose the strength and the power and the order that they have so dearly accomplished over a, a, a large span of time. That's, yeah. Well, that, that strikes me as precisely what every story I teach, both fictional, which is, of course, just a representation, a super representation of that, which is real, distilled down into a recognizable representative form, right? Mm-hmm. That that which is fiction is simply meta-real. It would make no sense if it weren't. The lessons, like we read fiction for what's real within them, the relationships between sentient beings and the drama that exists within them. And it, you know, you might have a fish talking dog that's blue that speaks a blah, blah, burgle, uh, you know, gulp language to you and all, everything seems different, but it's precisely those differences that allow you to see what's the same in such a text so that you can have an experience like you might have in the world of observing friendship between two unlike people and having that sort of warmth of affection from seeing that represented in front of you and so it strikes me that i mean what you're saying is is precisely right i mean a qu- the question i was going to ask that i think you answered was if if having a strong foundation is one of the 21 major rules of being a leader what is the strongest foundation of being a leader 
And it seems like you answered that the strongest foundation is the foundation that is the broadest, fairest, and can endure the longest amount of time uh, and can endure the longest amount of time through the most amount of uh, changes in the world. And that what you're suggesting is the, the sort of traditions, values, and religions as a connecting back, that's what religare means, of a people are, are the founding stones or the cornerstones mm-hmm. on which the people are first formed. Like with the idea of men, one of his first acts is establishing an altar to Hephaestus. Hephaestus, the fire god, <coughs> the fire god who creates ingenious designs rather than destroying man, showing that that which yes. once destroyed man, fire, can be harnessed by man and become his ultimate tool. Um, and that so, sort of the ultimate use of man is to build up order by means of his specific talents and logos in the service of such a tradition or his fellow man. Um, yeah. Correct. Yes. And um, the things, as you were saying, um, it's, it's grounding, grounding it in the things that are uh, the, lo- the, lo- the longest lasting, which would be the eternal things, which brings us full circle back to the role that a priest plays. It's the priest mm. that seems to be most in tune with the things that are eternal, the things that are lasting. The priest as the educator also in a time where education is mostly uh, received through priests. Uh, it's right. the priest who transmit that as well. And we see in Rome the Vestal Virgins and how they keep the fire in the, in the temple, always, always burning, always burning. Their one single concern is to make sure that the fire never goes out, um, which is a tragedy when it does, right? Once in the history of the Roman, of the Roman people. So we see this element that, I believe, as we mentioned earlier or previously in our other episode, is we see this element of leadership that is uh, because our society is hyper masculinity or hyper masculinized, if that's even a word. Um, We 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 tend to see that kind of um, passivity, that kind of nurturing of what's divine and guarding it and transmitting it. We tend to see it as something uh, less important than the active male, the male that goes out and conquers, or the male that goes out and makes a name for himself. So I, I'm, I'm, con- I'm, in- I'm fascinated by the dynamics, but I'm concerned also by the overwhelming majority of uh, leadership books and ideas being on the side of the hypermasculine. Uh, and again, I'm not using the term hypermasculine the ter- in the way that a lot of people in the media use it today. So I just want to make that clear. Well, you know, it's sort of interesting, too, because I think that goes sort of in line with the idea that we don't have a very balanced view of both tradition and progress, and that our view, just as that which is masculine and that which is feminine, now being sort of subject to debate and whether we can even use those terms as um, symbols, uh, rather, although they have obvious meaning, uh, the question seems to be, or... The, the attempt to saw off the branch that we, we're standing on seems to be if something was tried in the past that also resulted in some sort of imperfection, potentially like oppression, then potentially 
even if it is one of the most fundamental values that we have congregated about in our civilization, then it is open to question and immediate dismissal. You know, and when we say question, we don't mean investigation, right? We don't simply, we don't investigate the notion of religion or God Mm -hmm. or virtue or connection. We simply say that they are questionable as values and then suggest that they are just as questionable as any other value we can suggest, regardless of the fact that these values have, you know, sprung eternal civilizations from them so far as we know. And so it's almost as if, A, we are trying to question the, uh, the values that have existed alongside us as long as we have ever existed since we were chimpanzees even, like trust. Um, B, how we do question that which is val- valuable, we don't even know how to question anymore. We don't know how to inquire or to investigate. We simply raise an eyebrow with our latte and our iPhone in our left hand and say, hmm, that's debatable, <laughs> though we don't even know how to debate um, uh, <laughs> or conduct ourselves in the debate. We just know how to make posters and put them on pieces of wood like third graders at a craft show and, and then scream, right? Uh, that's, that's very that's very progressive stuff. Um, and, and, um, and, and then we, we don't even seem, we don't also seem to understand the danger of doing that. Mm-hmm. It's like we're a child with a shotgun pointed at our face and our finger on the trigger. <laughs> and we're like, this is a stupid looking thing. I bet it couldn't even bang. <laughs> it's, we don't understand that we're on a carpet covering a hole and that if we take the carpet off, we'll fall into the hole. I mean, the I just from a logical standpoint, I, I don't want to pursue this too much mm-hmm. farther. I know I'm really waxing here, is mm-hmm. is just that if these values, if these institutions, like say marriage and friendship and property, um, that that are fundamental to say our people, not only in the West, but also in America, and have always been aspects of the the shared existence we we've had our society. If we were to say, get rid of something like this, we have no idea how that would change how we interact with each other. We have zero idea. We've never seen it happen with us, but we have seen it happen with other people. Let's get rid of private property. Well, the Soviets tried that. So did Cambodia. So did North Korea. So did Cuba. So and it just, it didn't work out. It doesn't work out. When you try and change the fundamental, it, it's like it strikes me as trying to change the rules of the game you're playing while you're playing it. Mm-hmm. If mm-hmm. if you wouldn't do that with baseball or even with Monopoly, the board game, how do you think that's going to be successful with a 350 million person polity with access to nuclear weapons? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I don't I think if we were playing Monopoly now and I said we could change the rules, that either of us would be perfectly fair. <laughs> Add in three hundred and forty-nine million nine hundred, you know, ninety-nine thousand nine hundred, you know, and and like eight hundred people that I don't know. Uh, it's just, it, I don't think we have a proper respect for just how bad things could immediately become if we were to try and get rid of, um, you know, it's like we hate our father, but we don't know how much he is doing for us at all times. Yeah. Would be my most explicit metaphor. That's a beautiful metaphor. Uh, mm-hmm. and, yeah. and, and, and a sad one, um, a truly sad one for the reason that um, 
we as 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 sons of a father understand how much work or how much a father has given for the sake of his children um even if it's been silent suffering or if it's been silent work and it hasn't been clearly and exp- explicitly made um made aware to us there is that sense that uh, there's been a lot of work put into a lot of sacrifice put into it um yeah, you know, and on both sides too, you know, I even think I was listening to a conversation between and and we can which maybe conclude right after this. I'll let you get the last word, but I was listening to a conversation called Invitation to the Intellectual Dark Web, which is what we're a part of mm-hmm. um between uh Dr. Jordan B. Peterson and I think Jacob um Hirsch. Um, um I might have the last name wrong, but he he was talking about how during the civil rights era there were there were lawyers from New York who were liberals who were Democrats who would go down to the South and make sure that African Americans who were who were accused of of crimes they didn't commit, like of haggling women or something like that, who would certainly get jail time or potentially even be lynched if they didn't have representation down there. How these these Democrats would go down there and defend these people and 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 how, you know, he said his uncle himself had his car driven off a cliff. Wow. And you know, I think about these little Twitter trolls, these internet, uh, you know, warts on existence who just write these things and, and about people, terrible things about people. And all they're willing to do is sort of virtue signal on their, on their social media. And I'm, and I'm thinking, regardless of which side you're on, that's shameful. Because mm-hmm. both sides have had to fight before in order to defend something of value. Generally, those who are liberal fight for the that wit, fight for the freedoms within the country, whereas those who are conservative certainly fight for the freedoms outside the country. Though there are many liberals, of course, who have fought in wars too, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, but that we should remember the sort of stuff we're made of, and just what the stakes are in existence, and that there are, have been people willing to die in our own country and be subject to violence for their reputation and their person and their families because they believed in something greater than they were. And that's not something I see a whole lot of right now. And um, mm-hmm. it, well, maybe that's part of what I want, what I want to do this with you for just to maybe wake our generation up to the real stakes. What is it that it's worth sacrificing for? That's what we should be talking about. If you're not willing to sacrifice yourself for it, you shouldn't be talking about it. Who cares? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, Absolutely. Um, I think that it's, this is, this is a good, um, I, I do agree with you. This is a good ending point of to end with Cyrus again. Um, yes. At the end of book three of Herodotus, he has this line that I think has become immortalized where he says, Cyrus was regarded as the father. And to this day, Cyrus is considered by the Iranians, the father of the Iranians. He's still considered the father. But the line goes, Cyrus is regarded, was regarded as the father. Cambyses was regarded as a taskmaker. And Darius was regarded as a shopkeeper. And ah. right there we have three different leaders with three different, um, three different memories that we have. But to this day, we still think of Cyrus as the father. And, and, that's, and that's important, I think. Again, uh, going back to um, the significance of the male and the female, there is some importance that, or some meaning that can be drawn from the title father. And uh, that's probably something that we should explore here. We've, we've looked at the priest. Uh, 
Um, we've looked at uh, we've looked at the multiple types of archetypes of leadership. Fatherhood fatherhood is one that is very interesting to me, uh, very fascinating as well. That I think we should explore more in depth because perhaps that's one of the things we're lacking today. Is that Absolutely. is that reverence to fatherhood and what that means is really something that needs to be explored. Uh, I totally agree. I know that you work with a population of young men, many of whom don't have fathers. And with me, that's also true, though, to a lesser extent. And just one thing I would mention is that um, this is not just philosophy. Of course, you know, the the former president of the National Organization of Women, Warren Farrell, has a book out called The Boy Crisis. And just one fact I'll leave everybody with is there are 70 demonstrable empirical negative effects that not having not growing up with a father has on a young man economically physically they don't they even live less long they even live shorter lives in terms of their telomeres which in which are have a direct correlation with human longevity they don't grow as long in boys who don't have fathers and so the idea of a father of say a nation like like an Aeneas or the father uh, of a people like you said with um, Cyrus or or just father of a person um like like uh you um understanding the symbolic nature of that role and the importance of it within a tradition uh perhaps would would help us i don't know to live out or to embody our own roles in a better way because perhaps perhaps life is about individuality like we've talked about but perhaps it's also about embodying our roles as well as possible um, the roles that existed before us and will exist after, like father and leader, for example. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm very deeply interested in that. And I, I can't wait to integrate that into our next conversation. Um, and so for next time... I really look forward to that as well, Alex. Yeah. Yeah. And so so next time, talking more about Darius and a little bit of book four of Herodotus then? That would be great. And then after that, I'd be willing to jump to some Plutarch or... Um... Anything else you'd be uh, you'd like to? Maybe we can look at Socrates. Or... All right, and just to throw down the gauntlet a little, I heard that Miss Sarah Miller, my wonderful co-host alongside Mr. West Chance on the Potter's Pockets, was thinking about with our fellow graduate student alum uh, Aaron Desmond bringing out a great women podcast to compete. And so, just to let the ladies know, I'm in full support of this. And uh, if they would ever like to, after they've put this project together. And uh, Mr. Oscar Ortiz, you can tell me whether you agree with this or not, too. Maybe we can have a little debate. I'm, we can uh, pick, pick, yeah, pick a great man, pick a great woman, and then uh, debate, and then have the <laughs> listeners decide. That's right. I, I can't wait. I can't wait, actually. I can't wait to talk to Aaron and Sarah. It's been a long time. It's been a long time. It'll be great. Yeah. Speaking of great women uh, and great men getting to speak. All right. Well, thank you very much for giving us your time. I hope you have a good morning tomorrow and that uh this super substantial food is like super substantial coffee and it, it amps you up in the morning absolutely thank uh, you Alex. <laughs> thank you oscar good night Bye.